Okay, we are continuing through what we call 1 Corinthians here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 40. We're really picking up in the middle of Paul's discussion, really right in the middle of Paul's thought, but we broke it off last time for the sake of space and time. So we're picking up in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Let's just remember where we're at in the flow of Paul's thought. The Corinthian church has been misusing the spiritual gifts in the large church gathering, especially misusing speaking in tongues and prophecy. And so Paul is giving instructions related to this whole subject of the gifts that God has given them. And in chapters 12 and 13, Paul gave general principles that ought to shape the specific way things are done by the church when they all gather together. So in chapter 12, Paul emphasized the necessity of and the goodness of unity and diversity, that it takes lots of different parts to make up a whole body. That's a good thing and a necessary thing. Then in chapter 13, Paul emphasized the superiority of love, that everything needs to be driven by love, aimed towards love, motivated by love, that love is the superior way far greater than just spiritual gifts. With those two general principles in mind, Paul began in chapter 14 to give specific instructions to the Corinthians on how he wants them to handle particularly tongues and prophecy. And what he said so far in our last recording for 14, 1 through 19, is that in the large church gathering, prophecy is superior, it's better than tongues. And the reason for that is because it's more useful than tongues, because everyone can actually understand what's being said when you offer a prophecy, rather than when you speak in a foreign language, and the result is everyone is thus built up. That makes prophecy better. The only way tongues should be used in the church gathering, Paul has said, is if someone translates. Paul is so emphatic about the advantage of prophecy over tongues that in chapter 14, verse 19, where we left off, Paul said that he personally would rather speak five words with his mind, that is five words that are understandable by way of prophecy, than 10,000 words in a foreign tongue. Well, that's where we left off. And so Paul follows that up beginning here in verse 20 with this particular call to action. He says, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The basic call to action here in verse 20 is grow up, grow up. And in this immediate context of chapter 14, what Paul means is quit thinking that tongues is the end-all be-all of spiritual maturity and experience. Start thinking about what's best for the whole church, not just yourself. Start working for uh, their edification. That's what love would do. And so you need to grow up and be mature. And that word mature is the same word that was translated perfect in 13.10. But we noted there that it often is translated mature or complete. And that's why it's translated this way here. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 10, it was illustrated by growing up and putting away childish things. This is what Paul is thinking of. You need to grow up. And love is the hallmark of such growing up. It's the hallmark of such maturity. Um, that was clear there in chapter 13. Love is to guide how they use the gifts. 
And that's why Paul just said that he would rather prophesy just five words than speak 10,000 words in a tongue because prophecy is better for others. It's the more loving thing to do. So that's what he's appealing to here in this call to action. Grow up, think of other people in the church service. And not just other believers, uh, but what about unbelievers who might happen to come and visit your gathering? Well, that's where Paul goes next, and it actually is another reason why prophecy is superior to tongues. So look at verse 21. He quotes a passage from the Old Testament, and he says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a quote from Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. And he calls it the law, but he's using the word law there generally just to refer to the Hebrew scriptures. In the law, that is in the Hebrew scriptures, and he quotes Isaiah 28. And the point of the quote in its original context back there in Isaiah and the historical context that Isaiah was addressing is this. Israel has rejected God's truth and grace. His prophets have been speaking to uh, God's people, Israel, and they keep not listening. They keep rejecting it. And so now the consequences are going to come, and the consequences are the invasion of a foreign army, the Assyrians. And so now they're going to listen to, hear the language of the Assyrians, a foreign language, and that language is going to come to them as a message from God condemning their spiritual leaders for their unbelief and unfaithfulness, and really challenging all of them to repent and return to God. So Paul quotes that passage from Isaiah 28, and then he applies it um, to the situation in Corinth, and he does so by applying it to the contrast between tongues and prophecy. He draws out really one key implication from that passage in Isaiah 28. Here is the implication in verse 22. So then, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. In other words, foreign languages are a sign to unbelievers, just as it was in Isaiah 28. It's flowing directly out of that Isaiah passage. The unbelievers in the historical setting in Isaiah were the priests and the Jerusalem leadership who would not listen and obey Isaiah and the other prophets. They were the unbelievers. They were unfaithful to Yahweh. And so now they're going to hear a foreign language spoken to them, both as a message of judgment and a call to repent and mend their ways. It was a sign that the prophets were right, that they legitimately spoke for God, that the message they had spoken was actually true, that that the leaders, the priests and the Jerusalem leadership had been unfaithful to their covenant with God, and now the consequences had come and they needed to repent. This is the implication Paul draws out regarding tongues. It's as a foreign language. It's like that in Isaiah. It's a sign not for believers in the church, but for unbelievers. That is, tongues is not primarily meant for the church service, but it's meant primarily as a sign to unbelievers to confirm that God's messengers to those unbelievers are true and that the message they spoke is true. In fact, that's exactly how speaking in tongues functioned on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you read Acts 2, 1 and following, you'll see that tongues primarily served as an attention getter and confirmed that 
Peter and the other apostles were indeed spokesmen of God and that the message they were speaking was true. And that's why the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost led to 3,000 people repenting and believing and being baptized. That's the main setting in which tongues is supposed to be used as a sign to unbelievers. Prophecy, on the other hand, is more aimed at believers. And so look what he says. So he's just said, drawing out the implication, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, second half of verse 22. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So as a general rule, tongues, Paul says, is a sign for unbelievers in settings where that's the main thrust, unbelievers. And prophecy is primarily for believers in settings like the church gathering. That's why Paul says he would rather prophesy, because it's designed to build up believers. At least that's the way things are supposed to work. Now, the Corinthians aren't using it that way. In fact, they're so caught up with tongues that they've brought it into the church gathering. They're acting like it's the highest and best spiritual gift, and it's really making a mess of things in the way they're using it in the church gathering. Not only is it not benefiting the entire church, the gathering of believers, as Paul has already said in the first half of chapter 14, but the way they're actually using tongues in the church gathering, it's not even beneficial to the unbelievers who might happen to show up. And so now Paul invites them to think about their church gatherings and to think about how tongues and prophecy are operating in their church gatherings. At least that's the way I read verses 23 through 25. Now, to be fair, a lot of scholars have wrestled with verses 23 through 25 and how those verses fit with verse 22. And the reason they have wrestled with that is because at first blush, it kind of looks like what Paul says in verses 23 through 25 actually makes the opposite point of what Paul just said here in verse 22. In verse 22, Paul has said, tongues is a sign for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers. But then Paul imagines their church gatherings in verses 23 through 25 and describes the scenario there in which prophecy actually has an impact on unbelievers and tongues does not. And so then it's like, wait a second, that seems like the opposite of what you just said, Paul. So how does 23 through 25 fit with verse 22? And there's been a handful of suggestions. For example, well, it's a sign of judgment in Isaiah 28, but here unbelievers are actually seeking and visiting, and so you shouldn't use a sign of judgment in a context where unbelievers are actually curious and open to the truth and things like that. Those are some of the kinds of suggestions that people have given. And I grant that it's a little bit challenging. So what I'm going to offer here is uh, what I think makes the most sense. I think if we read closely what Paul has been saying leading up to this point and what he says flowing out of this, and if we pay attention to the word all in verses 23 through 25 in the scenario he imagines, I think we get a pretty good sense of what's going on in the church at Corinth and we can get a pretty good sense of Paul's point. And the point he's making is the same point he's been making all along that prophecy is the superior gift to be used in the church gathering. So now he has said that tongues are supposed to be a sign for unbelievers and prophecy for believers. But in the way that the Corinthians are acting in their gatherings, tongues can't even be a useful gift for the unbelievers who might happen to come and visit. Here's the way Paul does it. Remember I said what he's doing in verses 23 through 25 is inviting them to think about their church gatherings there in Corinth and how tongues and prophecy are functioning in the gatherings. 
and that we need to pay attention to the word all. So think of your church gatherings, O Corinthians. Therefore, verse 23, if the whole church gathers together and all the people speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, won't they think you're insane? The word outsiders there is the same word that was used in verse 16 that we said best refers to people who don't understand what's being said and don't understand what's going on. Uh, they're the uninformed. Uh, and then we have unbelievers. So we have outsiders who may be new believers or maybe, you know, curious about the whole thing. We have unbelievers there. So we have people who are just not familiar with what's going on in the church, visiting the church, and they all come and won't they say you're insane? What is he getting at, particularly if tongues is supposed to be a sign to unbelievers? Well, notice the word all. If, if the whole church gathers together and all speak in tongues. What was going on in Corinth was everybody talking at once, or at least they were interrupting each other and talking over each other and kind of demonstrating by their activity that, you know, how spiritual they are with the gift of tongues. That's why in verses 27 and following, Paul's actually going to tell them that, look, if you're going to speak in tongues in church, there should be no more than two or three at the most, and not all at once, but everyone needs to take their turn. So it's orderly. In other words, that's not what's happening. Paul's having to give them advice because everybody is speaking in tongues at once. People are talking over each other, um, interrupting each other. No one's translating the foreign messages. It's just sort of a chaotic mess. And guess what? The unbelievers don't get any benefit out of it. They just come in, they look around and think, this is crazy. You're crazy. What about their church gatherings and prophecy? Well, look what he says in verse 24. But if all prophesy. Now, prophecy was at least a familiar religious expression in their world. Tongues really weren't. There, there wasn't really anything quite like speaking in unlearned, unknown foreign languages. But prophecy was familiar in some of their religious cults and some of their historical heritage. Think of the Oracle at Delphi and some of this sort of stuff. It was at least familiar. And so here you have a bunch of people in church and notice all prophesy. So bunch of people are prophesying and still interrupting, and it's still a little bit chaotic. And again, Paul's going to go on and say the same thing. Two or three at the most, one at a time, don't interrupt each other, right? He's going to go on and say the same thing to the, the prophets in the church. But at least in this case, the experience is familiar, and the words are clear and understandable, and there's a clear message from God. So, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider, that is an uninformed person, enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So, once again, in the church gathering, prophecy has a benefit that tongues does not. It can at least convict unbelievers and uninformed people because they understand the message. Um, and, and it's at least more clear and understandable what's going on. This is why in a church gathering, Paul says he would rather speak five words by way of prophecy than 10,000 words in a tongue. Prophecy is just better in a church gathering because it's understandable. So in the church service with believers as the main audience, the main crowd, prophecy is the way to go. And guess what? In that setting, it will even have an impact on unbelievers who come for a visit. So Paul says then, 
What's the outcome then, brothers and sisters? Literally, what therefore? What then? In other words, what's the point? Here's the point. He pictures, again, the church gathering and lists off some of the elements that he's already mentioned above in chapters 12, 13, and 14. He says, when you assemble, that is when you gather together as a whole church family, each one has a psalm, maybe a reading of the Old Testament psalm, maybe a spirit-inspired new psalm. Who knows? You have a psalm. Each one has a teaching some form of instruction. Each one has a revelation, some specific word of revelation or prophecy. Each one has a tongue, has an interpretation. They have a, a message in a foreign language and they're able to translate it. Everybody has all these different kinds of things to contribute to the whole church gathering, which is great, but all things are to be done for edification. This has been Paul's main refrain. Quit serving yourself, quit thinking of yourself, act in the way of love, and do what's best for the whole body, the whole church. So, in the church gathering, what you do and the way you do it all needs to be done for the good of the whole group. And since all things are to be done for edification, Paul has some very specific expectations of the church there in Corinth, and those expectations all revolve around good order, doing things in an orderly fashion. In fact, verses 27 through 36, where Paul gives these expectations, could be titled, when to speak and when to be silent. Because Paul has instructions for the whole church, for everybody in the church, all different kinds of people in the church. He has instructions for everybody involved that limit when you can talk and how you can talk and when you need to be silent. And even though tongues are a sign for unbelievers, and thus the church gathering really isn't the primary context for that gift to be used in, Paul's not going to tell the Corinthians they can't use the gift in that context. He'll actually say in his summary conclusion at the end of this chapter that he's not going to forbid it. Like, pursue prophecy, don't forbid speaking in tongues, he says. And so it's not really the, the, the way to go in the church gathering, but I'm not going to forbid you to, from doing it. However, Paul is going to regulate it. And so look what he says in verse 27. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, that is, again, in a foreign language in the church service, it must be by two or at the most three. So we're not going to all do this. It's not everybody. It's not a, a speaking free-for-all where everyone that has this gift can do that, right? It must be by two or three at the most. No more than that in the church gathering. And each one in turn, everyone needs to take their turns. One at a time, um, not all at once, not interrupting each other and speaking over each other, right? One at a time, in turn. And one is to interpret. We explained in our last recording, interpret means translate. So there's got to be a translator. And then he says in verse 28, if there is no interpreter, if there's no translator, what is someone supposed to do? He is to keep silent in church and have him speak to himself and God. Whatever mighty uh, work of God he wants to celebrate by way of speaking in tongue, whatever uh, um, encouragement he wants to offer by way of describing the mighty works of God in a church service, right? Uh, if there's no one to translate, be quiet, keep silent, and just let your thoughts and your words be between you and God there in church. Likewise, with prophecy, there's got to be order, not everyone talking. So, verse 29, have 
two or three prophets speak and have others pass judgment. Same thing. It's not going to be a free-for-all. It's not going to be everyone doing it. We want order. And so two or three people, uh, max, speak in tongues. Two or three prophets offer a message. And then others have others pass judgment. What does that mean? Well, that means evaluating what's said. The word pass judgment is diacrino again. We've seen that earlier in the letter, and it means to evaluate and to discern. Probably the first bit of evaluation is, is this really from the Lord? It's the idea of what Paul has said in other writings, test the spirits and hold fast to that which is good. So test this, right? Um, it, it, it also means kind of evaluating the significance of the message and how to put the message into practice. What do we learn from that message? How does it encourage and exhort them? That's what Paul says in verse 31 is everyone needs to be uh, taught and exhorted. So how does this message help us understand God and his ways and Jesus and his ways more? And how does it, how should we put it into practice? And so that's the idea of passing judgment. It's evaluating and discerning and thinking this message through. So, two or three prophets speak. Now, if, verse 30, a revelation is made to another who is seated, well, then the first one is to be silent. He's not supposed to just keep talking and the other one jump up and start giving his message and try to talk over him. It's not all at once. We do it in turn. Um, We're not going to have this chaotic mess where we're all trying to demonstrate our importance by speaking over each other. So, if someone else has something to say, well, then the first person needs to finish and remain silent. The second person then needs to get up and take his turn to deliver his message. For, verse 31, you can all prophesy one by one, one at a time, in order, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. That's the goal. That's the aim, is to make it useful to everybody so that everybody may learn and everybody may be challenged and encouraged and built up. And then he says in verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That is, uh, prophets have control over themselves and their urge to speak. So if three people have spoken, then we don't need a fourth. If the fourth one feels like he has something to say, not the time. Keep quiet. Be silent, right? Um, We're not going to speak over each other and try to get louder and louder, right? Spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. And so it's not some trance-induced state where they have no kind of control, right? Like some sort of automaton, automatic speaking, right? No, they have complete control of themselves and they, they can wrap up their message. They can sit down. The other person then can stand up and speak and everyone can take turns because God, verse 33, is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, shalom, harmony, order. So everything must be done in an orderly way so that everyone in the church is encouraged and built up and can learn. So to summarize, tongue speakers, only two or three. If no translator, keep silence. Prophets, same thing. Two or three, one at a time, discern and evaluate what's spoken. And when someone else is given a message, sit down and be silent. Now, Uh, The next group that Paul wants to talk to is some women in the church. It's important to remember, we're still in the setting of tongues and prophecy in the church gathering. So what he says about these women must be understood in the overall context of chapter 14. Don't rip this out of context. All right. Look what he says to some of the women in the church. He says, as in all the churches of the saints... 
The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in the church or in the church gathering. Now, what an interesting and curious couple of verses, isn't it? <laughs> what, what were these women doing or saying that motivated Paul to write these words in this context where he's giving advice on tongues and prophecy? He's actually going to come back to tongues and prophecy after. So we know we're still in that context. So it's like, well, what were these women doing in that context that motivated Paul to say this? Not only that, are we talking about women in general or wives? Um, the reason that's an important question is because in the Greek language, the same word that's translated woman is also translated wife. It's the exact same word, women, wives, same word in Greek. And so are we talking about women in general? Are we talking about wives, maybe wives of the prophets, wives of some of the leading men, who knows? But So it's clear that he tells them to ask their own husband. So man, it seems like uh, maybe we're talking about um, wives, not just women in general. Not only that, chapter 11, 2 through 16, make it crystal clear that women were praying and prophesying in the church gathering. So women weren't totally silent. So when it says it's improper for a woman to speak, women need to keep silent. Well, they weren't completely silent because Paul gave instructions in 11, 2 through 16 for how to cover their head when they did pray or when they did prophesy in the church gathering. So how does what's said here fit with the fact that women already were praying and prophesying? And that last question there tips us off to the fact that whatever Paul means here in chapter 14, it's in this specific context and dealing with this specific issue that's going on regarding speaking in tongues and prophecy. It's not a sweeping generalization. It's one of those things where the Corinthians knew exactly what was going on in the church gathering that Paul was referring to, and we're just not sure. And we have to be honest about that. But what is clear is women did speak out loud in church. They prayed. Women did prophesy in church, right? That's clear. They just needed to do it with their head covered. Um, and so whatever Paul is saying here, it's dealing with a specific situation that's going on in the church. So first, a few observations on some details in the text, and then some suggestions on what Paul may be referring to. So the first is keep silent. Guess what? Paul just said that with tongue speakers in verse 28. If no translator, keep silent. Just as he said to the prophets in verse 30, when someone has something else to speak, then keep silent. So this has been a key component in Paul's instructions for how to main, uh, maintain order in the services. Tongue speakers need to learn when to keep silent. Prophets need to know when it's time to be silent. And the same is addressed to some women in that context who needed specific instructions on this. They needed to realize, oh, there's times when we need to be silent. Uh, women, well, like I said, it could be women in general or it could be wives. Verse 35 does refer to their own husbands. And so uh, it seems like we're talking at, about married women here. And Paul wants them to act in such a way that they... Uh, maybe don't bring dishonor on their husband or whatever's going on. And so if they've got questions, he says, let them ask their own husbands at home. Uh, 
Another little detail, he says, subject themselves. That's really important to pay attention to that, subject themselves. Notice it doesn't say somebody else make them submit or somebody else make them be subject. It says they do this for themselves to themselves. This is their responsibility that they have for their own behavior. Just as the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets, guess what? That's the exact same word. So a prophet is to subject himself and maintain order and know when he needs to stop and let the next guy speak, right? Same thing here. So again, acting appropriately and responsibly for the sake of order in the church. That's what we're talking about. And then Paul says, as the law says... And Paul may be referring to what the law said about the creation order, as he summarized it in chapter 11, or perhaps the entire example of like the Hebrew scriptures. It's not clear. We can't think of a specific passage that Paul has in mind. Uh, and so it's just a little unclear which passage he means, but he just means the testimony or example of the law in some way means there needs to be good order here, maybe even good respect between husbands and wives and wives towards husbands. Um, and then he says, for uh, it is improper for women to speak or wives to speak in church. And that word improper doesn't mean sinful. What the word means is a cause of dishonor, a cause of shame. It's related to the word used to describe uh, shaming their head in chapter 11. Like a woman who prays or prophesies with their head uncovered, shames their head, meaning their husband, uh, in doing it that way. And he compares it to uh, the shame of a woman having her head shaved. This word improper is related to that same word. So whatever form of talking some women were doing in church, it was something that brought shame, uh, just like when women prophesied without their head covered. And it may be actually the same sort of thing. Um, so, what do we do with all this? What do we make of these instructions to the women? Well, to restate, the Corinthians knew exactly what was going on in the church gatherings, and we don't, right? We're, we're too far removed in time. We're not there. So, they knew exactly what he was addressing. We don't. But here are a couple good suggestions in this context that make sense. Women wives were actually challenging their husbands when their husbands prophesied. Or maybe women were standing up or wives were standing up and prophesying in ways that challenged their husband. Perhaps maybe uh, during the evaluation um, of prophecies, they were speaking up and questioning or challenged uh, uh, their husband or a prophecy of their husband. And Paul says, no, not in church. You do that at home. If you, if you want to... Uh, discuss this with your husband, do that at home, not in the large church gathering. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that women were involved in a lot of crosstalk and chatter while the church service was going on. And again, it was just disorderly. Um, and so other people are standing up to speak or to prophesy. And women, or some women at least, were over here chattering and discussing what that last one meant and what they thought and giving their opinion. And there was a lot of crosstalk and chit-chat going on during the service, asking questions of each other and talking. And in view of Paul's concern for order that he emphasizes over and over here, such a distraction and such a disruption was disorderly. Paul says, look, if you have questions for the sake of order, keep quiet and ask your husband at home. Some have suggested uh, that since uh, women often were less educated than men, 
and typically didn't participate in public lectures that would happen at dinner parties and all that, that looked very much like the church gatherings, right? Those things were fairly common in the Greek and Roman world of the day. And women just uh, didn't usually participate in those public lectures. And wives very often didn't participate in those things. If uh, a man took a woman, sometimes he would take like a, 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 a mistress, a public consort or something. And so now in Christ, this is all changed and women are being allowed to participate. They're even praying and prophesying in all this. And so now they, they get to participate in these dinner parties of the church. They actually get to speak and share, but they're actually talking way too much, asking way too many questions, interrupting, talking over people. Um, it's a new privilege. They're not used to it. They're generally now being a disruption in the gathering. At least some are. It's not beneficial to everybody, so they need to quiet down. We don't know exactly what was going on in the church, as I said, but it seems like something like one of these uh, examples is what Paul is addressing, and Paul sees it as out of step with the practice of the whole church and not in good order. So in this context of, in the context of tongues and prophecy, he's like, keep it down, keep it down, all right? And so that's why I said this whole section is about when to speak and when not to speak. Tongue speakers, here's when to speak, here's when not to speak. Prophet, prophets, here's when to speak and when not to speak. Some women, here's when to speak, when not to speak, right? It's something like this going on in the church. And then he says in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God first went out or has it come to you only? In other words, um, what Paul means by this is um, he sets this whole thing up with the instructions to the women at, with as in all the churches. This rhetorical question here in verse 36 is meant to drive home that point that, look, you don't get to do your own thing in Corinth. There is a, a tradition of good order and the way things ought to be done respectably and honorably in the church that all the churches practice. You don't get to do it. And that's the force of this rhetorical question. Did the word of God go out from you or did it come to you? In other words, it came to you, right? Like Paul brought it to you. And since it came to you, you need to respect the, the order and the practice of all the churches. Then Paul wraps up the chapter by saying, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments, right? Test this, evaluate this. These things, I'm speaking to you um, who think you're spiritual and who think you're important and you think you're a prophet. You need to recognize what I'm saying are the Lord's instructions to you. And you need to take these things to heart. But if anyone doesn't recognize this, that what Paul writes are the Lord's commands. If anyone doesn't recognize this, well, then he is not recognized. That is, he's not recognized as a prophet or he's not recognized as a spiritual person. If you can't recognize that the Apostle Paul's words to you come from the Lord himself, then you're not really a prophet or you're not really spiritual. So with that, Paul summarizes his expectations as he wraps up this chapter. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy. Pursue that. Prophecy is good. That's what's best for the church. Earnestly desire that, but do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly way. And that's Paul's final wrap-up to this discussion. And all of this discussion brings up so many questions, things that are just hard for us to know because of historical distance. It's 
quite clear that the church gatherings in Corinth were very different than a modern Sunday morning church service. They were uh, much more communal. There was a meal involved that they would eat. We saw that in chapter 11, right? Uh, Everyone got to contribute or there was much more kind of this free-flowing interaction and it was more participatory and there were various spiritual gifts and people were sharing their gifts and speaking with each other. And so that's just a question, like what were their church services like? We can only piece it together a little bit by what we see here in Corinth. And then we're looking at a church that was misusing some of those gifts and we're trying to piece it together from there. And so Chapters 11 through 14 just raise a lot of questions for us, chapters 12 through 14 in particular. But what these chapters all emphasize is the concern for honor, order, and respectability. That things need to be understandable. That's been the major thrust of chapter 14. It needs to be understandable. That's why prophecy is better. It needs to be orderly and respectable so that it doesn't bring shame uh, on the church community and so that uh, unbelievers and people who don't get it come in and they're like, you guys are just nuts and crazy. And so this reminds us that as we read these words, wherever we stand on modern day spiritual gifts and some of those things, love needs to be paramount. Honor and order needs to be respected. And we need to make sure that we're doing things in a way that genuinely brings honor to God, who's a God of order and peace, and brings honor to everybody else in the church and helps build them up. And here in chapter 14, what that means is somebody has a spiritual gift of speaking in an unlearned language. Well, if they can't translate, they need to be quiet. Somebody has a gift of prophecy and something they really want to say in church, but we've already had two or three people speak. Well, then they should just sit quiet and, and wait till maybe another time uh, that we have control over ourselves and we don't just get to say, well, look, the Lord gave me this gift and I'm just going to use it however I want. No, we use it in a way that's uh, motivated by love and for the good of everybody involved. All right. Thanks for checking out this session on the Listener's Commentary. Uh, the Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of all kinds of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com and either supporting through the Study Hub and getting bonus resources there or clicking the Give button and setting up a monthly recurring donation or a one-time donation right there. Thanks a ton for your support.